Well, good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works and to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in our virtual studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. We're your hosts, Ron Beard and Liz Graves, who's on maternity leave. We hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And a reminder that we're recording this show in advance and won't be taking any calls today. Well, good writers pay attention to the world they experience as a kind of service to their readers. Their verbal pictures draw their readers in, spur their curiosity, and spark their own powers of observation. And today, um, this afternoon, we'll be happy to talk with uh, two writers who um, use landscape and place as a as a, a inspiration. Linda Cracknell is the author of Writing Landscape, um, published just this month in the U.S., um, and we're glad to have her uh, come across the waters from Scotland. Welcome to you, Linda. Thank you very much for having me. And Catherine Schmidt, closer to home. She's a science writer at the Skudik Institute, and she's author of The President's Salmon, published in 2015. And we hope that she'll talk a little bit about that. Welcome to you, Catherine. Thanks for having me so much. Perhaps each of you could share a little bit of your own paths as uh, writers and as people. Um, uh, Catherine, could we start with you? Just tell us a little bit about how you developed um, as a science writer. A descendant of immigrants from Ireland, so a little, little um, close to Linda, Sicily, and Germany. Um, I grew up in northern New Jersey. I think I was always interested in nature and writing, um, but did end up studying environmental science um, in college and graduate school. Um, have a lot of different work experiences. I worked as a piping plover monitor on the beaches of Cape Cod. Uh, salt marsh researcher for the Marine Biological Lab in Woods Hole. I've been a wetlands and environmental consultant. Um, was a research assistant for water and air quality research across the Northeast with the University of Maine. So sampling lakes and rivers um, all across um, the region. And then for many years, I worked in communications for the Maine Sea Grant College Program at the University of Maine. And now I've been at Scudic Institute since 2018. Mm. And so the, the transition from um, researcher, really, to writer, that came naturally for you? Well, I was always sort of interested. I mean, I chose the science route. Um, I had some advice, you know, that it, I just kind of chose to have a strong background in science and to come at the field from that position. And there's a lot, there's no one way to really become a science writer, um, and I did have, I enjoyed, so when I was a consultant, I had to write reports and write descriptions of, of places and often how they were polluted, but also wetland environments, um, and really liked that part of the job and, um, was able to get a position, um, doing science writing at the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science, a lot of Chesapeake Bay research. Um, and then when I came to Maine and I kind of always took classes in writing, like I, when I could, then when I came to Maine for graduate school, I just started freelance writing. I kind of reached out um, to different, you know, sort of smaller newspapers 
and just started doing it um, at the same time that I was a graduate student in science. Great. Linda Cracknell, tell us a little bit about your path. Um, when I first met you um, in 2000, I think we were canoeing down the River Tay. And you might have still been employed at that point, but you were making the jump to being an independent writer. Tell us a little bit about your path. Yeah, thank you, Ron. Um, I Yes, my it, it's been interesting to hear Catherine talking about her path. I think mine's quite different in the sense that I... Um, I came from an arts background, so I'd, I'd done an arts degree, literature and fine art together and worked in museums for a while. And then I, I decided I really wanted to, to work in the developing world. And I trained as a teacher of English as a foreign language specifically to do that and became um, what's known as a, a VSO in Britain, a voluntary service overseas person, a little bit like Peace Corps, the same kind of um, system. And um, I went off to be an English teacher in East Africa. And that was a very formative experience. And I was in a very beautiful place, um, Zanzibar, the island of Zanzibar, which is surrounded by coral reefs and turtles. And, you know, it's an incredible a beautiful place and interesting culturally. Um, so I was very fortunate. And so when I came back, I, f- I felt very committed to working in education, which allowed children in particular, but people in general, to have a better understanding of the developing world and the inequalities in between different parts of the world. And then that kind of gradually morphed into environmental education and, um, you know, I'm coming to you now from Aberfeldy, which is on the River Tay. And if you stick a pin into the middle of mainland Scotland, that's where it is. It's a small, very small place. But curiously, the, um, the head office for the Worldwide Fund for Nature for Scotland used to be in Aberfeldy. And that's how I came to be here, because I took a job as um, education officer in Scotland with them. I, so I had, I didn't have, I'd always, I'd come from a family with a, a, a strong sort of walking background, interest in landscape mountains and so on. And I guess coming here surrounded by hills and working alongside people who were working on polish, policy issues to do with things like native woodland, marine environments. I was in a good position both to explore and to learn quite a lot. Um, even though my, my, real expertise was more in educational methodology if you like and at the time we met Ron um, I was still in that job I think but I was about to have my first book of short stories published so that all happened very much at the time that I was moving here and into that job I started writing short stories and uh, I would still say that the short story is my sort of home really that that incredible sort of elliptical way that a short story can say so much or leave a question hanging or an atmosphere. Um, I still find them kind of puzzling, but an intriguing, very difficult to pull off. At some point, because I was doing quite a lot of um, walking, exploring, there came a point when I thought, actually, I could make, I had to write, I had to walk in order to write, but I, at some point, I felt I could actually make the walking into the subject matter. And in 2014, I had a book called Doubling Back, which was a series of walks. So that was my first nonfiction book. 
a series of walks which um, traced memory. And I would say that my writing is strongest, I'm, I'm most drawn to place and memory as my sort of two main strands, which is certainly true of this new book, Writing Landscape. Mm. And this has just been published in the US, as I understand. That's right. This is my first publication in in North America. Great. So that's Great. very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, perhaps both of you could reflect a little bit more, uh, go a little deeper in terms of the role landscape uh, plays. Uh, Catherine, um, as you've come to Maine, um, much of your writing now is based here in Maine and the, the Maine landscape, Maine seascape. Um, how, how does landscape influence you as a, as a science writer? Growing up in northern New Jersey, it was a place that's very densely populated and, and highly developed. And so when I moved to other places, um, nat the natural landscape just really stood out to me because of that contrast of not having a lot of it. You know, the rivers are paved and, and channelized in New Jersey. You don't people, there isn't that, um, aside from maybe the Jersey shore in terms of Northern New Jersey, where I grew up, that connection and that nature-based culture was, was lacking. And so I, it really stood out to me other places that I went from Chesapeake Bay, even Northern California, Western Massachusetts, um, and the, you know, the mountains there, the Metacomet Monadnock Trail, and just having access to natural landscape. And, and so I think because of that background, sort of that looking with new eyes kind of idea of being able to see things that maybe people who have always been immersed in an environment may not um, mm. notice. And so it always sort of has started with the land and the water and, and putting that in the foreground of the writing and using it as a starting place. Mm. Linda, and more reflection on, on landscape as the, as the motivator for you. Mm, um, well, I, that looking with new eyes, I think is critical for me as well. I think for me, I can be pretty sure that if I'm moving in a landscape or, or to some extent, if I'm keeping still, that will prompt me to imagine it'll prompt words. And I certainly found that to be true when I'm teaching creative writing. I nearly always take people outside and get into motion in a place because there are things to notice, you know, and inevitably through, through that, memory becomes active with smells or the touch of a particular kind of leaf or something like that. Um, it's not long before that's delivering kind of words and images and even metaphors for things or either or a character, you know. So actually I, I've, I've tended to find that that's for me a reliable way of exercising my writing brain is being aware of the landscape around me, whatever it is, even if it's an urban one. Um, I, if, I'm, if I'm ever kind of stuck for, for something to write about, I just know it's there. You know, there's, there's so much, isn't there, to, to, to write about a simple observation. And actually, um, one of the things that I found interesting about your work, Catherine, was that, that idea of there being facts and science, that I'm sort of coming at that from the opposite end, I think, that I've sort of, I might observe something and then think, oh, I need to find out a bit more about that. And so then I would perhaps dig a bit to find some facts. And then sometimes it really brings it alive for me, you know, that suddenly 
because oh, I've, I've just been on a walk um, in the flow country in the north of Scotland, and that is um, one of Europe's, I think it might be Europe's largest blanket bog. So it's very significant at the moment, quite worrying because it's drying and there are big efforts being made to wet it so that it retains the carbon rather than releasing it. But that is a very particular landscape. And I had a, an interesting, I had some interesting contrasts over a few days, but the last day there had been a lot of rain and the rivers went into spate and I couldn't continue on the path because I couldn't get across the river. And I ended up on a completely featureless expanse of bog and it was a really salutary experience and it made me feel something really quite deep quite unnerving actually and then you can see why it ends up places like that end up in wothering heights or <laughs> you know other pieces of literature because they they're you know great basis for the human emotions i just remind listeners that they're tuned to talk of the towns we're talking with linda cracknell the author of writing landscape uh, published uh, this month by Saraband Books in the U.S., and Catherine Smith, a science writer at Skudik Institute. She's the author, among others, other things, uh, The President's Salmon, uh, Down East Books in 2015. Uh, Catherine, you're going to respond, and then I'm going to ask you a little bit about how you both do your research, but go ahead. Um, yeah, so Linda, I, I was going to ask if you're um, the blanket bog, like, why did you choose to go there? Well, um, there was a quite a specific reason, which is that it, it's um, the, the book that I mentioned before with the 10 walks in it will be reissued next year for its 10th anniversary. And I need an extra walk. <laughs> and um, the, 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 the original 10 essays in it were all over the world, you know, and I thought, I'm not traveling these days, you know, I'm sort of staying quite close to home. And I thought actually um, at the moment this this place, the flow country, is of global significance because of its relationship to climate change. I've ne I'd never, although I'm interested in it, it tends to, it's a derided landscape. You know, people, I, I don't know if I can, actually, it's a bit sweary, so I don't think I can use the term that's used for it. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of, it's a landscape which people think is nothing. There's nothing there, you know, there's nothing there. And yet, if you look at it closely, it's absolutely incredible. So I, you know, I got my little handheld magnifying glass out and was looking at the um, sphagnum moss and stuff. But also, I was interested in the fact that despite it being quite a difficult landscape to cross, there are some old routes on it and um, reliable, well-ish, fairly reliable, uh, old routes that could be followed. And I've, I'd seen them on old maps and thought, well, that, you know, there was a route, there was a road there, so why? And um, I like that feeling of retreading former ways. So it was an experiment, really. I, asked, I think you were right in your, you know, the difference where I, I, think, I, I think I usually start with the fact, right? So I might do mm. something like, it's the largest or only blanket bog. And that immediately is like the light bulb goes off and it's like, what is a, wait, what's a blanket bog first of all. Right. And then like any kind of superlative, like the largest or anything like that kind of is, sounds like a story to me. And so, so usually, and because I have, I work with scientists and have access to scientists. I hear a lot of facts that, that they all know when I work with scientists to communicate their work, I, I talk about the curse of knowledge and how they know something so well that they forget that other people don't know. And other people yeah. are not fortunate enough to know all these 
incredible things like what's a blanket bog. And so, so when I hear, I have access to these conversations and, and scientific papers and things and, and research questions. And so that sort of inspires then me to go, and then I might go take a walk in that place, or then I might um, go and start looking and, and add the observation and imagination as you talk about those things together. Um, and so that it does usually start with a fact for me. Mm. It's, it's really interesting because I think my, my method is probably exactly the opposite. You know, it's, it's starting with the feeling of how it feels to be in a landscape like that and then getting drawn into wanting to know facts. And, and, and the result for the reader is, is very similar in both of your mm. writing. You mm. might start from different places, but you're helping, um, as I said in my introduction, the reader rediscover their own powers of observation and their curiosity. Catherine, you might uh, talk a little bit about how you came to write the president's salmon um, as a, as, you know, it's a, it's a big topic, um, but the president's salmon has a very particular place in history uh, and the Penobscot river is, is kind of symbolic here in the state of Maine. Tell us a little bit about that story. And then I'll ask Linda for uh, some similar background on a piece that she's written. Earlier, I mentioned how I started freelance writing when I was a graduate student and and I wrote a lot of stories about pollution and, and habitat destruction, which I think everybody thinks of Maine as this beautiful vacation land place um, as being very pristine. But in fact, we have super fun sites, you know, right right here in the watershed where I live and, and a lot of ongoing habitat destruction. And those tended to be the stories that I was writing about because they were newsworthy. Um, I was writing for newspapers and newsletters. And after a couple of years, I kind of realized that all of these stories were set on the Penobscot River. So mm -hmm. they were all sort of taking place up and down the river. And I kind of started to see a river book taking shape. And there wasn't a book. I think every river needs its book. And there really wasn't one about, about the Penobscot. Certainly other lots of other people had written about the river, but there wasn't, you know, it deserves a whole book. It's the second largest watershed in, in New England, um, the largest estuary. You know, it's it's certainly worthy of it. And so I just started thinking about how to put them together as a book. And then and then I actually sort of, again, the the kind of opposite of Linda, did science degree first and then went and got a Master of Fine Arts degree in creative writing. And it was while there um, at the Stone Coast program at University of Southern Maine that one of my mentors, Jed Coffin, kind of helped me think about a structure for the book. So he was like, you can't just, you know, write a, a chapter about this, a chapter about Y, a chapter about Z, and there's a book about like Save a River, right? Like that he was encouraging me to find a narrative thread. Um, I had also been working with the salmon clubs along the river and I was a volunteer and wrote their, edited their newsletters for years. And I was like, well, a fact is that, you know, they used to send the first salmon caught every year to the president of the United States. And, and Jed was like, that's it. That's your, that's your sort of narrative thread. And so, so I had a lot of the river description, the watershed, the settings, but then I had to pull in and write, really write the salmon part of it. And so that opened up this whole other world of, of fish and salmon for me. And Linda, in your most recent book, Writing Landscape, um, you have a, uh, an essay called The Writer, the Island, and the Inspiration. Uh, talk a little bit about that background and how you came to do research on the ground and research perhaps in the library as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, well that, well, that one came about um, because I, in 2019, I was lucky enough to win something called the Robert Louis Stevenson Fellowship, 
which um, at that time g gave you a month in France um, in a, in the hotel where he had at that time when he went there, he had just freed himself from the whole family lighthouse building business, which he was expecting to, he was expected by his family to enter. And he declared he was going to be a nomad all, all his days and an artist. And uh, so this was a big life change for him. But I, I, although I'd won the fellowship, I wasn't, I wasn't hugely knowledgeable about his writing. I'd read essays, but I hadn't read any of the fiction books. So I thought I should really read Kidnapped, you know, which is um, the story of a young man called David Balfour who gets shipwrecked off the west coast of Scotland, which is a very rugged place, and washes up on an island. And um, he's, he's a young lad. He's only 16 or something. And he circles this island, getting more and more miserable in the rain with nothing to eat um, except some sort of rather unpleasant, chewy seafood that he can pick up. And um, he can't see it. He, you know, he thinks he's isolated. Um, and when he does see a fishing boat go by, he waves at them and shouts and they just completely ignore him. And he finally works out after three days of total misery, soaking wet, he realizes he's actually on a tidal island. Um, and he could have just walked off at low tide. So it was very convenient for the narrative that he only ever circled that particular stretch at high tide when it was <laughs> full of water. So I, I was quite interested in that. And this island is called, this tidal island, it's, it's very small. It's called Ered, and it's off the far west tip of the Isle of Mull on the west coast of Scotland. A very rugged place, and there are there were a lot of shipwrecks on that coast. So this was a piece of fiction. However, I decided to go there myself, but I also did do, as you suggested, a bit of reading and discovered that he had, while he was still working with his father on the lighthouse business, he had been to Arid because it was from Arid that two major lighthouses off the West Coast were engineered. And so he went there with his father to inspect these. And of course, while he was there, he would have had a good look at, at what was on offer on the island for fictional possibilities. And I imagine he wasn't a very good engineer because he would have been much more interested in hiding places and um, young men who wanted to escape and so on. Anyway, so I, I decided that I should go to this island for a 24-hour stay and um, got myself there with ferry and a bicycle and um, found it actually very straightforward to get onto the island. But I thought there would be very little water there, so I thought I could only stay one night. It's the most beautiful place, um, which has a beach, which is known as Balfour Bay, with white sand, turquoise sea, and red granites carved around it. It's, it's absolutely stunning. The weather was beautiful. It was midsummer. I, I couldn't believe my luck, really. Um, and I knew that I was going there probably in order to write something, but I didn't know exactly what it was because the place was very engaging, but was probably not going to be quite enough with a bit of the history of Stevenson and the place. It probably was going to need a bit more. But what happened was that I decided I must stay more than one night because it was so enchanting. It was returning to my tent after having taken a stroll around the island and discovered somebody who I thought was hiding in a, in a little kind of stream next to where I was camping. And um, 
it was a little bit alarming. It was a bit like something out of a Stevenson story because I could only see the back of this person's head and it had such straggly grey hair. And I was quite, quite alarmed, really. And then suddenly there was a very beautiful woman with long grey hair on the beach chatting to me. And we, we talked for a long time. And I said to her, you know, oh, oh I, I can't stay any longer because I've completely run out of provisions and, you know, I'm going to have to leave tonight. And she said, oh, well, I, I'm on a boat over there and we've got six weeks worth of provisions. So what do you want? And so I was able to stay longer. And actually her story seemed to kind of weave into the whole experience of being on the island. And the fact that my experience was just so very different to David Balfour's because whilst nobody helped him, I had masses of help and masses of food and beautiful weather. And um, and it was a lovely way of being introduced to Kidnapped, actually, the book, and imagining this young man setting off on this great journey right across Scotland from west to east and learning about life and becoming a man and fighting and um, you know it was a time of great trouble in Scotland so it was a it was a significant journey so it set me up so I did write it and it turned into a very long piece Um, but it also the whole experience set me up for my then departure to France um, in his footsteps and it gave me a sense that I had connected with him in a strange way, uh, which was a nice way then to to go on and um, go on to another place where he'd been. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns um, this afternoon. We're speaking with Linda Cracknell, the author of Writing Landscape, uh, published uh, this month in the U.S. by Sarah Band Books, and Catherine Schmidt, who's a science writer at Skudik Institute author of The President Salmon and other uh, pieces as a science writer, recent contributor to Orion magazine, six words I am trying not to use when describing land. A great, great essay. We'll come back to that. Um, perhaps, um, uh, Catherine, you could talk a little bit about um, a piece in your book, The, the President Salmon, called Subumic. And you've a frame, refrain that helps frame the relationship between Wabanaki people and the land, because you have the question come back, where do you come from? And we come from a landscape. <laughs> so talk a little bit about that chapter or the inspiration for that piece. We come from landscape and so do salmon. Um, and so that chapter, it's early in the book. And that is, so the book, it has sort of some interesting structure to it where there is a headwaters to the sea structure. So there's a geographical structure. So Sabumic is up in the headwaters of the West Branch Penobscot River. Um, And then there's also a sort of life cycle sort of um, structure to the book that follows Atlantic salmon. And so that chapter is about where do salmon come from? How old are salmon? How are they related? How did they arrive in this landscape? We are a glaciated landscape. And so um, the last ice age ended, you know, about 15,000 years ago. And so um, that's sort of where a lot of our history begins. Um, But then there's also people on the landscape um, who have sort of a very different history. And so the refrain of where do you, so where do you come from is also sort of helps with that connect the salmon and the people. And that chapter is about um, Wabanaki ancestors and their relationship with salmon. And the the language actually comes from John Banks, um, who is the longtime director of natural resources for the Penobscot Nation. And I think it relates to 
what we were talking about earlier, this idea of seeing with new eyes. Um, and there's a downfall to that because when you arrive someplace and you see it with new eyes, there is a tendency to think of yourself as the first person or that no one else has ever seen this before. Um, and so there you are, you know, the writer on the scene and, and you all of a sudden realize that there are other people who have always lived there and this, and, and who am I to say, whoa, where did you come from? You know, Penobscot nation. And, and so John kind of, you know, he and I had, had some back and forth when I was working on some of the earlier pieces of the book under sort of different circumstances and, and really posed that, that idea to me. And so, um, and I think now it resonates because one of the things that all of us can do is think about where we come from. Um, we're all indigenous to somewhere. And so thinking about that place and how did we come to be and live in the landscape where we are now? Um, who are the people who have always lived in that landscape? Um, and that connects to the essay that you referenced, you know, this idea of remote places. I noticed, Linda, I don't think you use remote. You said rugged or um, I don't know how you describe the bog, right? But but remote is relative. So what's remote to me, um, Jersey girl, you know, is not going to re be remote to people who have always lived there. And just because a place is not visibly inhabited doesn't mean that people don't live there and relate to it and have sort of ongoing relationships. And so it's just the kind of thinking um, to know that, that every landscape has, has a human connection in some way or another. Mm. And, and so what happens when we refer to places like, um, remote or pristine, how do we treat them? And, and Linda, that goes to your comment about the flow country. Um, you know, p people there treat it differently because they make some assumptions. Um, mm. uh, Catherine, start with you and then we'll go to Linda. Um, well, I think both remote and pristine convey this, the, it's a very sort of settler colonist way of viewing the landscape that, that the only human relationship with land is bad. Um, so Robin Wall Kimmerer has a great chapter about this um, in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, about her students could not come up with any examples of positive human relationships with the land. But when we look to Wabanaki nations and other indigenous people, we all we hear about are great examples of how human interaction with the landscape is not inherently bad. And so pristine conveys that, that it's pristine because it's untouched by humans. Um, and so if, first of all, it's a lie because humans have polluted the air and the water globally across the globe, the deep, the bottom of the ocean space junk flying around. Right. So there is no such thing as if that's what we mean by pristine it doesn't exist. So it's not true. And I'm a nonfiction writer. So I, I want to write the truth. Um, but then it also just per perpetuates this idea that the ideal nature is one without people and, and we're never going to solve the problems that we have if we continue to believe that. Mm. Linda, any observations? Again, uh, Scott, what I know about Scotland is that um, there are vast um, parts of land who haven't been inhabited for a couple hundred years or 150 years. Um, so people tend to think of those as the iconic places one should go when, in fact, those lands were populated um, before mm. um, people were cleared off them. Any reflections about that notion of landscape there? Yeah, so very much so, uh, you know, because I think, you know, the flow country is quite a good example because, um, 
you know, people refer to it as being, there's no one there, there's nothing there. But actually, where I was walking, uh, there were fre- frequent places where you could tell that there had been previous habitation. And, you know, now it would be described as possibly remote because it's not near a, a road that cars can drive along. Um, and yet, you know, in the past when people moved in different ways on the land, there were clearly um, small settlements there was clearly agriculture, you know, f- f- land had been um, brought out of the bog and and nurtured and sheep were probably there. Um, and I think quite often in places in Scotland, you you can just feel, you just feel that there was someone there before. You, f- you feel it was settled at some point. And it's not always tangible in any physical evidence, but you can, you can just sense it. Um so I, I actually find that really interesting. It's the sort of other side of what appears to be empty. I think probably what's used more often in Scotland, because we don't have vast tracts of emptiness mostly, but where there are apparently empty places with no people, um, they, they're not empty if you look at them historically. And one of the things I always like to do is, is to look at old maps if I'm visiting a place and that's very revealing because there's often settlements, there's place names, um, you know, that have, have since gone, but, but you, you sense it. Yeah. And I find those places really poignant mm-hmm. and the, and the old roads as well, you know, you think, and they're not, they're not empty because there's animals living there and there's yeah. plants. Living there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but even if you think they're empty of humans, they're not really, you know, um, yeah. Let me turn the the page a little bit. Um, both as writers, you're probably connecting with readers, your audience. Uh, what is it that you hope um, you leave with them? What's the what's the hope that you have, uh, Linda? What do you hope when someone reads um, your pieces, and you can you can reflect perhaps on the differences between um, your fiction writing and your mm-hmm. um, nonfiction writing? What what is it that you hope? readers take away with them? Yeah, I think there would be a bit of a difference between the nonfiction and the fiction. I think probably in fiction, I'm hoping that they have a an emotional reaction of some sort. It may be quite small, especially with a short story, or a different, a slightly different way of looking at something, or a slight sense of being unsettled. Um, but mostly I would see that in the realm of imagination and emotion. Whereas in nonfiction, I think I would hope most for it to inspire curiosity so that a reader might then think, oh, gosh, well, maybe I could go and look at such and such a thing and find that there's more to it than than meets the eye. Um, and um, so I, I, I'm probably not first and foremost trying to give information, although I do do that. And, um, but I guess the point of that is to bring it to life a little bit more. So some of that will be done through observation and some perhaps through information and facts. Um, but I th- think, yeah, I think what I'm really doing is wanting a reader to feel curious about the world mm. and possibly for that to lead into their own observation and even possibly writing. Mm-hmm. 
Catherine, you're trying to, um, in some ways, you're trying to get an emotional response too. Um, that's to care about the place that we live. In, in when I read your pieces, um, talk a little bit about what your hopes are for your readers. Well, I'm glad you got that because that's certainly sort of, I think, always uh, a purpose. Um, the President Salmon, the book we've been focusing on, one of the things that I really hope that I think people, so some people have told me they read that book and it makes them angry. It makes them really angry how how much the rivers um, were abused um, for a long time. But I always counter those reactions with, but it's really a success story. So it's an amazing success story of how people, I mean, people ruined the river, but people restored the river, right? And so, and how how quickly we can act to fix things. So the Clean Water Act is, um, and the, um, the its predecessors, late 1960s, early 1970s, were huge, were absolutely transformative in, in cleaning up. And they made possible all of the restoration, the dam removals that are happening today. Um, the reason we have, we can have fish back in the river at all now. Um, I mean, we went from having zero fish to over a thousand salmon returning, which Linda is probably like, oh no, that's so few, but that's like, that's huge. That's the biggest year in over a decade that we've had in the Penobscot River. Um, in terms of wild Atlantic salmon returning to the river, they are an endangered species, but they're here um, and they are surviving just as they have for um, tens of thousands of years. Um, and so I want people to realize that we can turn things around. The Clean Water Act within a decade, the EPA was declaring the Penobscot River a success story, a water quality success story. Um, and then the dam removals, it took people, um, the Penobscot Nation and the salmon anglers who were so connected to the river, um, fighting to protect it. You know, they fought proposals for new dams after proposal after proposal, um, and because they prevented all of that new infrastructure, they enabled the removal of, of existing dams. And so that is the story that I hope people take away from the President's Salmon. And then my first book, A Coastal Companion, I think was partly to think of the Gulf of Maine as a region. You know, we don't have much. The Gulf of Maine does not really have much of a regional I, cultural identity. And I think to think, you know, maybe people to think about the Gulf of Maine as as a regional large watershed identity and also just think about the coast and the sort of specific seasonal changes that happen in the coastal environment in the Northeast, um, as well as an appreciation for writers. Linda, I love in the, the essay on Stevenson, you talk about this adopted literary inheritance. And so there's a lot of, I quote a lot of Maine writers and talk about me and Gulf of Maine artists in a coastal companion. And so thinking about art and science together um, was also a part of that book. And then Historic Acadia National Park, which is my most recent book. Um, I think the purpose there is really to bring in some of the natural history and to combine that, that human and natural history in one place. And also to highlight, highlight the people um who helped create the park um, and who take care of the park and make it possible for all of us to enjoy the park today. Mm. Just remind listeners um, about uh, Coastal Companion. That was a few years ago, but um, describe it. Um, it's on my bookshelf, but you describe <laughs> it, please. Um, so a Coastal Companion, a year in the Gulf of Maine from Cape Cod to Canada. 
Uh, it was published in 2008 by Tilbury House. Um, I do, I think um, that it's going to be um, reissued this year um, by Down East. Um, so I think it will be sort of available in the fall, but not not sure. Waiting to hear confirmation on that. So it is hard to find. So if you see a copy, um, I would I would grab it. Um, I did see Gulf of Maine Books in Brunswick, Maine. They have one copy. Um, so anybody who lives who lives there can um, pick that one up. Um, and so it was basically an almanac style book. So there's an entry for every day of the year. It's not specific to any one year, but it has seasonal phenomena, descriptions of animal uh, migrations, what plants are blooming along the coast, what's happening at the ocean in different seasons. And then like an almanac, it has birthdays of Gulf of Maine artists and writers, um, historical facts, sort of maritime um, history is in there a little bit as well. Great. Well, I'll just again remind listeners they're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU, talking with Catherine Schmidt, science writer at the Skudik Institute, author of A Coastal Companion, um, and The President's Salmon, among others, and Linda Cracknell, who's author of Writing Landscape, published this month in the U.S. by Saraband Books. Um, each of you have had connections with young people, either as um, students in a, in a classroom or perhaps in, in writing workshops that you kind of organize. Um, talk a little bit about that, Linda, about uh, um, what inspires you about working with uh, young young people as writers, as observers of of their world. Yeah, well, it's always a great joy to, to, to work. Well, I, I mean, I love teaching of any sort, but I think working with children, um, you're guaranteed some quite fresh ways of looking at things. And, um, and also just the joy of words, you know, the actual, um, joy of the sound of words and the funniness of words and all the different things that you can do with words and how they feel in your, in your mouth and everything. Um, I when when I was working more in environmental education, um, one of the things that we were very careful about was was ensuring that um, the process wasn't disempowering. You know that that because there's actually so much potential for children thinking, well, what can I do? You know, this is just awful, terrible. What's happening to the world? What can I do about it? So, actually, finding things which are positive contributions to make. Um, and I suppose a little bit like that. And if, if I'm doing writing workshops, um, I will usually start with observation, actually, with people of any age and ideally outside and ideally without the eyes. Um, so um, one thing that's quite fun to do with with young people and children is actually to get them in pairs and to give them a blindfold between them. And then the job of the partner who doesn't have the blindfold on is to give the other one a sensory adventure so they've got to find them interesting things to touch or smell or um occasionally taste to be a bit careful with that one <laughs> um and um and then try and find some words to express what they've experienced and the directness of that experience and it can sometimes be a very surprising experience because you know, suddenly a birch leaf might feel much more squeaky than you would expect it to, to feel. Um, uh, that that in itself can generate generate quite a lot of words. And I think the other thing is is the simple question, "What if?" 
question mark, you know, what if such and such a creature suddenly walked across this path that you're on, you know, or, uh, you know, it's getting the imagination engaged and, um, you know, that I often think with, with children, they have absolutely no problem setting the imagination off. Sometimes it's quite difficult then to rein it back into something which makes a contained story because it can, it can go and then and then and then. But I, I find, um, you know, I often do find working with young people inspires me because, because it's a, it's a different way of looking at the world than me. Well, and everybody's different, but, um, it can be, it can be very fresh and fun and without limits or without trying to be artistic. Mm. So, um, and does that help them then become writers, even on a small scale of their own? Do, do you help them um, take that experience and, and write it down? Yes. So that the next stage would be to try and capture it in words so that somebody else could understand it. Or to write from the point of view of a tree or a bug or whatever. So that's that imaginative leap. Um, or a conversation between you know the stream and the tree or whatever to actually write that as a conversation and these things are quite fun i mean actually something i do over and over again with young people because it's always a joy is riddles you know writing riddles yeah and because and it's it's a great incentive for children to write on their own because they don't want anyone to know what they're doing because it's going to be a guessing game at the end and so they're quite happy doing their private bit of writing and thinking of, you know, killer clues. Um, and I think this, again, links to, to your work, Catherine, in the sense that um, I always say, you know, you want these words to sound nice. You want it to sound kind of poetic and so on. Well, not poetic, but, you know, you want to, make, to pay attention to the sounds of the words. But also you need some facts. So quite often they do have to go off and um, either ask someone or look in a book to find some some facts, and then there'll be a fact there that will throw their their potential audience, which can be quite fun for them. And I think that's quite empowering, is to realise that um, you know we can have a, a motive for finding for finding out information and then using it in a literary form. Like that. Catherine, you and your colleagues at Scudic Institute are often um, working with young people. Tell us about your experience there. So, yes, so I, we certainly have programs for, we bring middle school students to campus for a Scudic Education Adventure, and they have a photojournalism uh, module in in that program. Um, And, but my work focuses on our early career scientists who are college interns, um, People may be recently graduated from college who are working as ecology technicians, so it may be their first professional position, um, and also fellows um, who are sort of within three years. So that sort of between college and career um, period um, in in ecology professions as, as well as communication. And so, I mean, everybody's a writer, just like everyone's an artist, right? And so this, I think, you know, Linda talked about this, can they this idea of giving them permission to sort of write and, and be creative and, and encouraging them that they can do it. And they know they already have it sort of within them to do it. Um, and I, I encourage them to follow their own curiosity. So I don't give out a lot of assignments, but I want to see what bubbles up for them because often what you're curious about or excited about or interested in 
What do you want to go look up? Like other people are too. If you're into something, someone else is going to be interested and want to read that. And so I encourage their curiosity. And then within some guiding principles. So, so I've sort of developed sort of science communication essentials that, that I work through in various trainings and workshops. And at the beginning of the season, we sort of go through the essentials, some of which have come up today. So the idea of having purpose and what is your intention? If you're going to communicate something, you, you, there's something you want or something you want to change. And that's why you're communicating. And so being intentional about thinking about that before you start is really important. Um, we write a lot about science. And so understanding that science is a process, right? Science isn't the facts. It's how we came to know those facts. And so communicating um, about that, how science works, it's something practiced by people, but also that it's not the, it's a way of knowing, but it's not the only way of knowing. So that there are other ways of learning um, about the world besides um, what what we call traditionally call science. Um, you know, I encourage them to sort of be honest about the history of the places that they're writing about and the history of the discipline of ecology, um, which isn't which isn't always um, a rosy history. Um, and then I also, you know, I think one of the big one of the big pieces of advice that I'm often giving out is to be specific. So whether it's an article or a web story or a cover letter, um, it's to really be specific and and have a way to communicate your unique place in the world. And I think this is where young people, if, if they're not comfortable with writing or they haven't been encouraged in the right way, they, they don't think they can do it. And so there's, there's just sort of um, a little bit of a fear, I think in sharing specific details and, and being specific, but in fact, that's the best writing. And so finding ways to encourage them to, to be creative um, and share their unique perspective with mm -hmm. others. Well, of course, that, that advice isn't just for young writers. Um, it's for writers right. of all ages. And Linda, you work um, with writers of all ages, um, including some really um, I think you take folks to the Sahara. Is that right? You, um, yes, I've been. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's a different landscape. And yes. and and what do you what do you take away from that landscape with with the writers that you're trying to inspire? Yes, I, it's it's really interesting because I think it's a little bit hard to separate the effect of the landscape on us and the effect of having a digital detox because the two happen simultaneously. And I think they are linked, um, although we've never made that explicit. But um, there's a sort of unsettling feeling initially of being in, in a place. We always go to the same place. And um, it can be a little bit like the blanket book. It can appear that there's nothing there. And it's all <laughs> sort of quite uniform. And, um, and then you see it. Uh, at dawn or dusk and it's a completely different thing you know because the light the light is everything actually the light in the sky is everything and the sound um and you know it's a hard desert quite a lot of it's hard desert as well as some dunes it looks incredibly different in different lights um but but people what seems to happen is that um it really appeals to the sort of elemental nature of people as writers and so there's quite a lot that we can play with with that. I mean, actually, we often do riddles there with an adult audience, but um, and um, there's there's some processes which are quite invisible. So, for example, there's a there's um, 
there should be a river there. I've never seen it run. Um, and the last time I was there, we, we found out some information about this river from the person who, who is there more of the time. And um, then we each took a voice of, for example, the sun or um, the salt that comes up um, through the sand when, when the water isn't there and wrote from their point of view about what they hoped would happen when the water comes back. Um, and so things like that can be really powerful because it was a nice community exercise to do because everybody took a different point of view um, in, 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 the, in the situation of the river. Um, but, but actually we just stood there and looked at the space where the river should be. And it was, it was a wonderful experience just to sort of focus on a space and its possibilities and the fossil bed that is exposed um, and realising how very, very ancient it is. Um, so I think people in that environment who don't, a lot of people who come don't consider themselves writers or even would-be writers, but they're willing to write because it engages with them with the place. It gives them a way of engaging quite deeply with the place through words. Linda, you're giving me all kinds of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope the two of you get to meet in person sometime. Um, that would be great. We're, we're, uh, <laughs> we're closing in on on the end of our time. Uh, perhaps you could share, and then we'll come back um, to another uh, broader question. But um, share contact information, um, especially about um, books or articles that you would like listeners to talk of the towns to focus in on. Uh, Linda, tell us a little bit about Saraband uh, Books and, and your publisher here in the United States. So Saraband Books is a, a UK-based um, publisher, independent publisher, doing a lot of very interesting um, books in the nature field, but not exclusively in that. They also do um, prize-winning fiction. Um, and um, that so the the, uh, the my current book, Writing Landscape, is available in the US um, through indie pubs. So that would be the way to find it. And um, hopefully we'll be in all good bookshops, but let's see. <laughs> um, and um, our, my website is um, lindacracknell.com. So you can find kind of further further leads from, from there. And I'm hoping that next year there'll, there'll be a... a further issue of doubling back 10 paths trodden in memory. Great. Uh, Catherine Schmidt, uh, contact information for you to share with listeners. Um, I have a website, katherineschmidt.com, and all my writing is archived there, and you can get links to everything and information about my books, and all the books are available um, at your local independent bookstore or bookshop.org. Great. Great. And just a final uh, word before we close, um, you know, what should we be going out to, to write about tomorrow? Um, give, give some advice to our, our listeners here on Talk of the Towns. Catherine, what should we be going out to look at and write about tomorrow? I think we need to write about the rain. Um, so I, I think people here in Maine need to, we need to write about, about the weather. The weather is something that we all share as humans, right? We all experience the weather. And so it's, it's a wonderful kind of unifying topic and it's really being affected right now by our actions. And so I think it's important that we 
um, not just have conversations about it, but also also write about it. Um, and I do want to also share some of my writing for the National Park Service and for Scudic Institute um, can be found on nps.gov and scudicinstitute.org. Great. Thanks. Uh, Linda, what should be we should be writing about tomorrow? I would suggest changing the perspective. Um, and so that can be looking at things upside down. Or um, how about lying on your back and looking up, um, particularly lying on your back and looking up through the canopy of a tree and just spending some time with that and then getting your notebook out. Great, great. We come to the end of a very short hour. Be sure and join us from four to five on the second Wednesday afternoon of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org and tune in to our companion program, Coastal Conversations, with Natalie Springle of the University of Maine Sea Grant program from 4 to 5 on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Karanak on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks to our guests. Um, Catherine Schmidt is the science writer for Scutic Institute, president, uh, author of The President Salmon and other books. Linda Cracknell is author of Writing Landscape, published this month in, by, in the U.S. by Sarah Band Books. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown and, and uh, Joel Mann for helping to engineer our program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and The Groove Shop from 6 to 8. Liz Graves and I are your producers and hosts for Talk of the Towns, and this is Ron Beard wishing you a good afternoon.